Today on episode 17 of the Think Wildlife podcast, I will be interviewing Dr. Richard Lele, who is the co-founder of Project Seagrass. We talk about the importance of seagrass in tackling the climate change and how seagrass can be restored around the world. So welcome Richard, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So my first question for you is that, why did you start Project Seagrass and what is your long-term vision with this organization? So. I guess there's a there's, there's four founders really of Project Seagrass. Um, myself, uh, uh, Dr. Richard Unsworth, Dr. Richard Unsworth, uh, Benjamin Jones, or Dr. Benjamin Jones, and Dr. Leanne Cullen Unsworth. So we're all um, we're all academics, and we actually found, founded Project Seagrass ten years ago now. Um, so it was yeah, July twenty uh, July 2013 is when we set up Project Seagrass, and really the rationale for doing that was. Um, I'd, my background personally is, is a secondary school science teacher and also I'd worked as a diving instructor. Um, and I couldn't square away in my head when I turned up in, in 2011 now it was to do my master's at Swansea University. I could understand that uh, the, the fact that no one had, I hadn't heard of this habitat, no one I'd spoken to had heard of, you know, seagrass ecosystems. And yet there are these incredibly important habitats and, Richard and Leanne at the time were working as academics at Swansea University and Cardiff University, and, and they just um, both come back from working in Australia, where there's a, there's a lot, I guess, greater literacy around seagrass. A lot more people are aware of the habitat and its importance. It's, it's, it's well managed, um, or it's better managed, let's say. And so, you know, they'd come back, they'd come back to the UK from, from that context, and were they were shocked at the sort of lack of recognition that seagrasses were getting. And then Ben... Um, we, we, we taught in the diving club together at, at Swansea University. And so, um, we were coming at it from that sort of, um, commu- I guess a communications angle, Ben's very creative and yeah, I guess long story short, we just felt there was a real need to communicate seagrass ecosystems in a way that was accessible to the public. I think a lot of scientists or science that is produced, um, is produced for other scientists in mind which is, you know, necessary, but sometimes that means that that science never reaches the public in a way that um, it should do. And certainly I think that was the case with seagrass science in the UK. Whilst work was being done globally on seagrass ecosystems, perhaps not that much in the UK, there was this real gap, this real um, need to sort of take that seagrass science and communicate it to the public so that they recognised the habitat in the same way that they recognize mangroves they recognize coral reefs or, or whatever it may be so yeah really it was just to shine a spotlight on the world's seagrass and um and you know hopefully raise its profile so it starts getting included in you know decision making and management and so what role does seagrass have in tackling the climate crisis um so science seagrass is um is noted for its ability to um, sequester carbon, to bring bring uh, draw down um, carbon dioxide in and um, turn that into organic matter, which is then sometimes buried in in, in the sediments, or also to capture organic matter that's um, maybe you know like leaves or anything from land perhaps which is passing through a water column. Um, it gets slowed down by the seagrass canopy, and that organic matter might then be deposited within within the, the blades of the seagrass. And then it might be sequestered into the sediment. So, however, however it gets there, seagrasses end up storing carbon, um, not 
too much carbon in the above ground biomass and the blades, but the, the real um, attraction for seagrasses is a carbon um, sink, are the fact that it's storing this carbon in the sediments below below the seagrass meadow. Um, and so there's lots of interest in using seagrass or planting new seagrass um, to, to help sequester and draw down some of that carbon um, and, and getting it, get it stored in the, in the sediments. But I think perhaps more importantly, one of the things that we need to realise is that currently, where there's been seagrass meadows um, present around our coasts for um, hundreds, thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, actually underneath each of those seagrass ecosystems is a carbon stock, which has been sequestered down over millennia. And so should we lose those seagrass meadows? Should we lose that canopy? Should uh, we take active fishing gear and drag it through a seagrass meadow? Or should water quality become so bad that seagrass meadow can't survive? Well, that then leads to or can lead to is the resuspension of all that carbon. And so that we're actually causing um, much more carbon to be released back into the atmosphere through the loss of the seagrass meadows. So it's one of those sort of, um, it works both ways. You know, the more seagrass we have, the more carbon we can sequester and it can help mitigate the effects of climate change. But actually, as we lose seagrass, we're just, we're just uh, accelerating the, um, the problem that we find ourselves in with respect to atmospheric carbon. What are the main threats of seagrass meadows face? Globally, I'd say water quality. Um, you know, certainly it's, it's, it's hard to generalise because seagrasses are, there's 70, 72 different species globally. They come in different shapes and sizes um, and they all do different things, really. I guess some are, seagrasses are generally found in shallow, sheltered coastal environments. Now, around the UK, that usually means in six or seven metres of water. And so, you know, it's, it's going to be unlikely that it's going to come into contact with, with uh, mobile fishing gear, well, depending upon the type, but unlikely. Whereas in the Med, for example, in the Mediterranean Sea, where it might be found at 40 metres, then active um, sort of bottom trawling can, can have quite a significant impact on, on seagrass meadows. Um, and, you know, anywhere in between the tropics. I guess if you can think of... If you, if you can think of those those seas and oceans where you've got really clear water, you know, the Caribbean or the Mediterranean, you get really good light penetration to depth. And that means that seagrasses can survive in, in those deeper waters. Where you get much murkier seas um, and you don't get that, that same clarity, that those same oligotrophic conditions, then seagrasses are going to survive in, in much more uh, shallow waters because, again, they just need that light. So... Yeah, seagrasses are found on every continent except Antarctica. And as but you know, they seagrasses cover yeah, 72 different species. So um there's quite a variety in there. What is the importance of seagrass meadows in both tackling poverty and for fisheries globally? Yeah, so fisheries is a big one. You know, I think one of the, the interest in seagrass, at least in my experience in the UK, has largely been around its capacity to store carbon and increasingly around the uh, the fact that seagrass meadows are havens for biodiversity. But the fisheries one is actually, or the fisheries contribution that seagrasses make are huge. Um, seagrasses are, are nursery habitats, essentially for, for a number of juvenile um, species, uh, juvenile fish species, or, or species, a number of species. Let's start that entire sentence again. For a number of species, um, including commercially important ones, seagrass meadows act as as, as uh, like nursery habitat so you tend to find baby fish essentially or juvenile fish in in seagrass meadows and so 
you know, if you're losing seagrass meadows, you're losing those seagrass ner- those nurseries, and you're losing the supply of um, young fish, which will then become adult fish. Um, some research which, which was released a couple of years ago showed that around 20, 20% or nearly a fifth of the world's largest fisheries um, have a link to seagrass meadows. Um, and that's the big commercial fisheries. But, but actually, if you if you dig a little bit deeper, you know, we see globally seagrass meadows providing uh, food security for coastal communities across the globe. There are some of the coastal communities we work with in Indonesia, for example. 100% of their dietary protein comes from seafood that is extracted from their coastal zone, which is predominantly a seagrass meadow with um, with some, some fringing coral reef in there. But there's a very, very raw link there between the health of that coral reef seagrass meadow complex and accessibility to dietary protein. If that coral, coral reef bleaches, like we're seeing a lot at the moment, or if that seagrass meadow is degraded from... Um, you know, destructive fishing practices or, or or poor water quality, then the productivity of that meadow drops, and the the amount of uh, biomass and fish that we we see in um, available fisheries drops, and so diet and so food security is um, is then compromised. And so, you know, seagrass meadows are for many communities that's that's um, fallback option. You know, it should like for what happened through COVID when supply chains were globally disrupted, should people need to eat, then they can always go down to the coast and they can always uh, um, forage or uh, what we call glean from from a seagrass meadow. They can take bivalves and mollusks and fish and and whatever it may be. But if that seagrass meadow is degraded, then that fallback option isn't there. And so, yeah, you know, it's not just seagrasses, it's mangroves, it's uh, salt marshes and coral reefs and, and everything. But if... If we don't have accessible coastal, if we don't have, if we don't keep our coastal habitats intact and look after our seascapes, then, you know, then there is no plan B for communities when um, supply chains are disrupted. What is the role of seagrass as bioindicators of marine ecosystem health? So, yeah, so seagrasses are, I guess, globally viewed as um, uh, an indicator of good water quality. So, you know, in the same way we spoke just, just back then about the fact that seagrass meadows are, um, are lost when water quality is poor. You know, seagrass meadows equally are present when water quality is good. And what, what causes seagrass meadows to be lost is, this, is if water quality gets too bad and there's too much nutrient loading into that marine environment, we, we see a process called eutrophication. Um, and... That I mean, it, the, depending on the exact location of the seagrass meadow, it can take various forms. But essentially, you might end up with a situation where you get uh, algae um, uh, growing rapidly and smothering a seagrass meadow, so the seagrass can no longer photosynthesize, and then it dies. And if that happens over a large scale, what you end up actually with with is the complete loss of that seagrass meadow in that region and a, a regime sh- shift from a, a seagrass dominated ecosystem to a to an algal dominated system, and then recovery can be much. It can be quite difficult and quite slow. So, um, yeah, generally, generally speaking, what we what we see is seagrass being lost when water quality is poor, and seagrass um, recovery um, when water quality improves. And we're quite actively involved as Project Seagrass in seagrass restoration in the UK. Um, and one of the things that we are real advocates for is we need to remove 
pressures first before we even think about restoring habitats because there's no point trying to plant a seagrass meadow if the water quality is too poor if the water quality is too poor you'll plant it and the seagrass will die so what we need to do is um stop putting so many nutrients into our rivers and our estuaries and, and into our coastal waters we need to stop dumping sewage this is a big topic in the news at the moment through our combined sewage overflow systems um and and if we can stop doing that then that will improve our coastal and estuarine water quality and that will allow ecosystems to recover in some estuaries, like we work in the Firth of Forth here, seagrass meadows have been lost, or a large extent of seagrass, um, you know, there's basically there's fragments remaining. Now, those fragments might need a little bit of a helping hand, and you can you can expedite the process of recovery or assist recovery by bringing new seeds or um, into into the um, estuary to improve the seed bank. But um, yeah, the only the only reason we're even attempting this project now is because. We've got documented evidence to show that water quality in the Firth of Forth has improved over the last 20 or 30 years. Now, since we've discussed the importance of seagrass, let's let's move on to the restoration of seagrasses. What processes are involved in seagrass restoration? Good question. So there's 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 essentially two different ways of restoring seagrass, if you're going to sort of generalize. One seed-based restoration, where which is simply taking the seeds that that seagrasses produce. So seagrasses are um, angiosperms, they're marine flowering plants, so it's just a bit of a context. So they're not they're not algaes, they're, they're plants that evolve on land and return to the sea. And so they have all those characteristics you associate with land plants. So they they, they flower and they produce seeds and they have roots uh, and um, leaves, etc. But because they produce seeds, one of the ways we can, we can restore is through seed-based restoration, which is collecting those seeds and planting those seeds. Now, different species will either produce, you know, one species which we work with in the UK is Zoster mariner. Um, its reproductive strategy is to produce lots of seeds on the hope that a few will actually make it into the sediment and germinate. Whereas there are other species of seagrass, like in the Mediterranean, which may only produce one or two seeds, but they put a lot more energy and a lot more resource into those one or two seeds. So the chance of that seed surviving is higher. So depending upon the the sort of reproductive strategy of the plants there are different methods but the basic premise there is you take a seed and you plant it just like you would plant a, a seed on land then there is the option for transplanting now transplanting is taking an adult plant or a, you know a seedling and physically moving it from a place where there's lots of them to a place where there's very few of them seagrasses um can grow rhizomatically so they can reproduce asexually so where you've got one seagrass plant it will produce a rhizome or shoot sideways which will then become an exact clone of that original plant and it will do that again and again and again so from one original plant that you may transplant into a bare sand area if the conditions are right that plant will then expand rhizomatically sideways along the sea floor to fill the area and so um that might be the other option is that transplant based method for restoration um, as a global community, or particularly as a European community, with the species that we work with, a lot of work is being done across Europe at the moment um, in different locations to work out what is the most appropriate method for the different sort of uh, setting that you might find a seagrass meadow in. So, you know, whether that's like the Danes are using uh, individual shoot transplants, um, the Dutch have been used like what we call sod transplants, where you take a seagrass plants and you take all the sediment around it so just like you would 
in a garden centre, find a plant that you can buy there and transport home. They're doing something very similar where they take a uh, seagrass plant and all the, all the mud around it and move that whole system across into a new, a new site. And then here in the UK, we're doing predominantly seed-based restoration where we, we try to collect hundreds of thousands of seeds every summer. And we then take those two areas where we're looking to restore and we plant those in the sediment um, while using various different methods. What are some of the best seaweed restoration projects around the world? Some of the ones that we really look to at the moment, so I'll, I'll give two examples in for the plants that we're looking at in particular. One is in, in the Chesapeake Bay in the States, in the USA. Um, there's a, a team of scientists there who for probably 22 years now-ish, over 20 years anyway, have been looking to restore Zoster mariner, so one of the species of seagrass in 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 a, in a bay there. And they've been very dedicated over this 20-year period. Um, but they've actually restored 3,612 hectares of seagrass over that period, which is the single largest restoration project, um, seagrass restoration project I know of on the planet. Um, and so that that really is one of those real success stories. And that was a combination of, you know, dedication. 20 years of planting seeds takes takes a lot of dedication. It's also about pressure removal. The water quality of the Chesapeake system improved at the same time they were planting. And so um, we were, you know, they were able to see rapid ecosystem recovery there. Um, but also because it was done at scale, what actually happened there is you had enough seagrass, um, I guess, take hold in the system. There was enough seagrass um recovery to change the conditions to become more um favorable for seagrass and then you have this positive feedback loop where the meadow begins to extend naturally a similar example of that a much younger project is um across in the the wadden sea in the in the netherlands five years ago they started restoring seagrass off greened which is an island in the i've probably said that wrong but an island i think it's called greened in the wadden sea um, and last year, so five years in, they'd restored 650 hectares. And again, they haven't planted 650 hectares. They've just planted uh, a sizable enough meadow so that the, it, the runaway effect occurs and the meadow becomes self-facilitating and it just expands naturally. So, yeah, we're really looking forward to seeing how big that meadow is actually this summer because you know, that potentially that could be up towards the 1,000 hectare mark, which would be incredible. So what are some of the main challenges with seaweed restoration? Challenges of seagrass restoration, I think seed supply, in terms of scaling, seed supply is a big one. Um, certainly if you're looking to do a seed-based method, you know, we're working probably in the region of half a million to a million seeds a year collected, which means we can only plant half a million to a million seeds there's a need to be planting tens of millions of seeds a year and we just can't collect that many each summer. And so one of the, one of the ways that they, they address that sort of seed volume bottleneck in the States was they went, they, they essentially built an underwater lawnmower, if for want of a better word, where they were able to mechanically harvest seagrass seeds. Because if you can collect 10 million seeds a year, you can plant 10 million seeds. And so, you know, having a, a mechanized system for, for scaling the amount of seeds you can collect was, is a big one. And then the other way that we're looking to address that, and, and along with other seagrass groups globally, is we're um, 
we're developing a seagrass nursery. And so what we're hoping is that if we can actually grow seagrass seeds in, in saltwater ponds, and our nursery down in South Wales, there's these large outside saltwater ponds that we could, we're looking to plant in. But if we can actually essentially farm seagrass on land in these saltwater ponds, then we could hopefully collect seagrass seeds from the farm and, and plant those out at sea. Or we could grow the plants into uh, the, the seeds on in these saltwater ponds into plants and then just transplant those plants out into the sea as well. So we're at the beginning of a journey here for sure, uh, and there's lots to learn. But I say that's probably one of the biggest challenges is actually um, getting the number of plants that we need to put into the into the coastal environment. I say the other big one in the UK is water quality. But water quality is probably the single biggest barrier to restoration at a lot of sites in the UK at the moment because, for the reasons I said earlier, too much too many nutrients heading into the the rivers and streams and estuaries um, from intensive land use practices. And, and then also we're, we're dumping sewage, literally sewage into the sea and into um, into our estuaries. And so when you've got that level of nutrient loading, it, it's pretty difficult to re- restore habitat. So beyond seagrass restoration, what are some of your key projects you guys are working on right now? So <clears throat> I guess the one of the biggest projects we work on um well this which ones one of the biggest ones in the uk is something called reso uk uh, the website is i think literally reso r-e-s-o-w dot uk uh, and that's a a, a a big research program to look at um where we should restore seagrasses across the uk for maximum gain basically you know if we've if we've only got limited capacity to restore seagrasses where can we make? Where can where could we restore seagrasses um, to have the maximum impact? And that might be impact for carbon or then like sequestration. It might be impact for supporting fisheries. But you know, having that as a tool for, to inform decision making, I think is really important. And then globally, we do some work <clears throat> on a it's a UN project which is working in East Timor, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, and that's w- working with. Uh, coastal communities to empower them with the skill sets they need to be able to do the science they need to evidence the importance of their local seagrass meadow. So, for example, that might be doing fishery surveys to understand what fish are living in seagrass meadows and that end up at local market. It could be looking at um, supporting them with taking carbon cores, so understanding how much carbon is stored in their local sediments. And essentially providing the evidence base so that they can then turn around to local local governance and, and local nature managers and say, look, these meadows are important and therefore they need to be protected or they need to be managed in a better way than they are now. Um, and so I think, you know, con- seagrass, beyond the seagrass restoration, that seagrass conservation is probably the single biggest and most important project we do, actually, because there's no point in restoring, you know, five, ten hectares over here in the UK if we're at risk of losing a thousand hectares in Indonesia and Malaysia, you know, we need to be thinking we're in, in the midst of a global biodiversity and climate emergency. We need to be thinking at that global scale when it comes to managing our, our marine ecosystems. How are you utilizing citizen science for sea bed restoration? 
So one of the, this is actually a, <clears throat> a really um, timely question because one of the things that we um, have developed over the last few years is something called Seagrass Spotter, which is a citizen science app. Um, it's you, know, you can download onto your phone. It's also a website, seagrassspotter.org. Um, and what that website does or what that platform does is it allows people to upload photos of seagrass <clears throat> from anywhere in the world. And on the, on the computer or on the app, if you're not sure about your seagrasses, it, it gives you a sort of like um, uh, a list of features or like a choice um, <clears throat> table, essentially. So you end up with the right seagrass for your region. It'll only present certain seagrasses to you if you're in that region. So in the North Atlantic, it'll only present the, the, you know, the few species we have here. But basically, any individual then can, can um, contribute to science just through a few taps of their phone or you know, if, they, if they've got a GoPro or some other underwater camera. If they take a photo of seagrass, they can upload it to this website. For the photos that come through to the website from the phone, a lot of cameras, um, like smartphones these days, the location that the photo was taken is actually, that data is captured in the photo. And so any upload from seagrass spotter from a smartphone, um, the GPS point at which the photo was taken just comes is, is put onto the map. If you're uh, diving or snorkeling or whatever and you um, want to upload some photos, you can do that retrospectively onto the website and um, you can put in an error margin because you, you'll know roughly where you were swimming, but you won't necessarily know precisely. But actually all of that data that is being captured on there is now being used by scientists um, and in particular by the remote sensing community. So we've been doing some work with um, satellite remote sensing and essentially seeing, can we map seagrass meadows from space? And the way that we're trying to do that is looking at the what we call the spectral signature, but the color that comes back from the seagrasses when we look at it, when we look at a meadow from, um, from some satellite imagery, because it will give, essentially it will give back a very precise or like shade of green, which looks slightly different to kelp or, or other macroalgaes. And so if, if you can imagine, if you've ever played on like Google Maps or Google Earth, or whatever, and you're scrolling along an area of coastline, you see lots of dark patches in the sea, but we don't necessarily know what they are. But if someone's been there and they've uploaded a photo on Seagrass Spotter, that gives the remote sensing community something called ground truth. It confirms that what we think might be seagrass is actually seagrass. And then what we're able to, to do is to draw a, basically a line around the edge of the meadow and do that for all the, all the ground truth that we have. And so over time, we're hoping to build up a, a global map of seagrass um, based upon um, you know, submissions of uh, seagrass sightings from from the global community my final question for you is that what has been your greatest learning from your conservation career oh so many learnings i think for me something which i think is more clear now than ever is that local people You've got to involve local people in the decision-making um, around any project or anything that you want to do in a coastal environment. Local stakeholders are absolutely essential to the management of, of a local, whether you could think of it as a resource or a local habitat or a local ecosystem. So, for example, in the UK, we know that there's a, a need for coastal restoration. We know there's a need to enhance our seascapes and to put back habitats that have been lost. But we also know that across the UK, there are some coastal communities that are really in favour of, 
of marine restoration. They really want work being done in their local area. And there are other communities that are perhaps on balance, not keen for people to come in and, and enhance their um, their seabed, you know, plant a seagrass meadow or restore kelp forest or whatever it may be. And so actually public, the different, different sort of attitudes of the public around the UK um, because of because of how they they perceive or how they use their local area can be a make like a can make or break any project that's you know that um is proposed and so you know communities have to become front and center of any decision making um it's all well and good planning projects you know with a map of the uk in front of you saying nationally this is where we think they should go but you've got to work with people uh, on the ground and you know co-create projects essentially so yeah communities should be front and center of conservation that is the last question for the interview thank you so much for your time it was a pleasure speaking to you yeah pleasure thanks for having me